2: Oh, Russian fairies. I wasn't even thinking about them. Uh, all right. Uh, welcome to the show. We're going to talk about fairies today. It could be argued that a host who wasn't Irish-American maybe wouldn't have done this show. I certainly come from a very, very friendly culture. Uh, one day when my father had what, in retrospect, I think was probably a transient ischemia attack, he, as he recovered, tried to allay our fears by saying, I was influenced by elves. Uh, He talked about little people a lot. He didn't really believe in them, but I'm sure he grew up among members of the Irish diaspora who believe uh, in them. When my friend Ann Batterson was traveling in Ireland, she stayed in an Irish guest house. And I don't know how the subject came up, but uh, this is maybe in the 1980s or so. Uh, I don't know how the subject came up, but she said, uh, do you believe uh, in the little people? And the woman who owned the house said no. But they're here, which is a very, very standard, I think, unsurprising Irish dualistic attitude uh, about fairies. We think about fairies as living and being and being talked about and believed in in the past. But they're also believed in now. I mean, within the last few years in Ireland, uh, there was a lawmaker who believed that problems on the N-22, a fairly major road in Ireland, were due to ferry activity uh, and that they were going through areas that were rife with ferries. And in Iceland, they right around the same time, they were having a debate about whether to build a road through a rocky area that was known to be infested with ferries. Um, So and obviously there's a Wiccan revival going on in in this country. Not all Wiccans believe in fairies, but there's a subset of Wiccans who absolutely are very interested uh, in fairies. And then there's you. Sometime in your life, you or your offspring have sat in a theater and clapped your hands as hard as you could to show that you believe in fairies so that Tinkerbell might live again. So don't tell me you don't believe in fairies. Um, We're going to do this show today partly because Midsummer Night's Dream is being played at Hartford Stage Company. We'll tell you about that in our second segment. In our final segment, we'll tell you about one of the most famous fairy cases in England. It happens to be 100 years old this year uh, and uh, involves the photographing of fairies, or maybe not. But first of all, we have to just sort of do a little basic fairyology if there is such a thing. Uh, So joining us to do that uh, right now is Richard Green, professor of English emeritus at Ohio State University, specializing in Middle English literature and author of the book Elf Queens and Holy Friars, Fairy Beliefs, Uh, and the medieval church. Uh, Also joining us is, I hope I'm going to say this right, A. Ruth Bottingheimer, uh, literary scholar, folklorist, and research professor at Stony Brook University, uh, specializing in European fairy tales and children's literature. She's the author of Fairy Tales, A New History. Um, So, uh, Richard Green, um, welcome to the show. I want to begin with you. Um, And if there's an answer... A general answer to the question, What are fairies what are fairies supposed to be um, I know there's no kind of equivalent of olson 's uh book of standard british birds uh, that are, that covers fairies, but what can we say about them
1: well I, I think uh, we can easily get trapped in a, in a in a kind of taxonomy of fairies um, um, for me, it's better to, to to look at them functionally, as it were. The, uh, people believed in three kinds of humanoid spirits, uh, creatures. In the Middle Ages, um, there were solitary ones; so there were, they, they, they lived all alone in the forests, so and might, might you might come across them. There were household ones who lived amongst you, and. and Made the cream turn sour, or did the dishes for you. Uh, but the ones I'm interested in are the ones who were social, who lived in a community, in the outside, on the edge of the of human the human life world, and interacted from time to time with the human human beings. But, but had their own society, their own culture, which mirrored ours. I mean, uh, and those were generally in the Middle Ages in England called elves. Uh, in France, they were called fays. Um, but there are lots of other words for them, too, terms for them too and I, I think you can easily get caught up in trying to define what all these various words mean and what they re- apply to. I think this is the way a literate society thinks about things a dic- society with dictionaries i don 't think that 's the way people in the middle ages who uh, were largely or the society was largely oral i don 't think that 's the way they thought to our fairies. You know, the terms would vary from one village to another i 'm quite sure
2: in um, in Maybe uh, let's add Ruth to this conversation. Um, First of all, I hope I did say your name correctly.
0: You did. You got it just right.
2: Um, So uh, in the Middle Ages, if people are believing in fairies, the Middle Ages are also a time of pretty intense Christian activity. Were those two things completely inharmonious with one another? What would fairies be? Heresy? Blasphemy?
0: Well, Professor Green is talking about uh, belief in fairies and fairies as people experience And my work is mainly with fairies in their literary history. And there, there's a, a pretty clear uh, genealogy from, from medieval literature right down to the 18th, beginning of the 19th century. As far as the church is concerned, fairies were always regarded as competition for the legitimate sources of uh, supernatural help, which in the church was called miracles, and so they were quite naturally pushed aside in favor of of saints and the Virgin Mary.
2: Um, Richard, were there ways, I mean, Christianity is notoriously syncretistic in in terms of referring to its ability to absorb some latent indigenous uh, folk tradition or religious tradition. Could Christianity do anything with fairies?
1: It did, it did. Um, uh, Perhaps the most obvious example, I think, is is, is purgatory. Uh, The whole doctrine of purgatory, uh, which it's been argued really only arose, it has forerunners, but it only arose in the 12th century. Uh, The whole doctrine of purgatory, if you look at it at least in in the popular vernacular texts, as opposed to Latin Latin, uh, theological texts, uh, is full of fairy lore. It's full of uh, echoes of fairyland, and it seems to me that 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 one way in which purgatory functioned culturally in medieval society was as a as a way of distracting people from their uh, the, their belief in fairies. That purgatory was purgatory was the official uh, sort of in between life uh, and death state, whereas a lot of people believe that. That you could, like King Arthur, go off and live in fairyland, and that the church wasn't having that, that the church couldn't couldn't accept, of course. No. But that's one example. But there are others. Yeah.
2: Um, and, and Ruth, I think we need to talk about why why fairy stories exist. Maybe in a sort of Bettelheim, uh sense, why do we need to have fairy stories? What do they do as literature, as things that we tell to one another?
0: Well, let's. Uh, start. Let's start several hundred years before Betelheim Because Betelheim is very, very 19th century In his his thinking Let's start instead in in the 12th century When we get the first appearances Of creatures called fairies And they are pretty generally uh, acknowledged To be um, sort of reformulations of the fates Of the three fates in particular And um, these fairies are... Equally amoral, and the fairyland that that Professor Green referred to is this parallel world where these fairies, unlike the fates, have a a complete backstory. They've got friends, enemies, jealousies, loves, and very often what's going on in their lives in fairyland has an effect on the humans who wander into their circle, into their parallel world. Now, that fairyland group of fairies persists right through the end of the Middle Ages and into the early modern period, into the age of print, when romances became tremendously popular. I'm talking about the late 1400s, early 1500s. And these romances had knights going off on on, uh, quests and the rest, and they met up with giants and with fairies. And the literary part continues when fairy tales, as we know them in the modern world, fairy tales evolved very soon after that. And they were, at bottom, abbreviated romances, very abbreviated. And they had fairies in them who brought magic into the lives of people who were trying to make their lives better.
2: Right. There's something very appealing about the notion that fairies can grant wishes, that fairies can bestow magic on you. Right, Ruth? Particularly if you're stuck in some little nowhere town in the Middle Ages. It doesn't seem like your life is going to change very much based on observable phenomena. But maybe unobservable phenomena are going to help you out. Let's
0: stop right there, because one thing that's running through this discussion is the people, and as though the people were something that everybody was. And there are very distinct populations in the Middle Ages. There are people who are educated, who might not be able to read necessarily, but they're educated because they've, they've been exposed to literature, which has either been read aloud or they've heard about. And then there are people who live very far from the world of letters, and those are the people who believe in imps and boggles and, and will, will o the Wisp.
2: Um, so, um, Richard, I, you know, in a way we're sort of talking about two things. Uh, literature exists for one set of reasons, and it's often because these are stories that we want to consume, maybe for some of the reasons that Ruth has been talking about. But fairies a- as an idea also exist, I think, because of the notion that there are places where the veil is thin between one world and another, that there's an unseen world, uh, that there's a-, a world that we need to think about, even though we can't see it. I don't know. Can you help me a little bit Richard yeah, with that I idea? I
1: think that's absolutely true. I, I I do disagree a little with Ruth here that I I, I don't think the I, I think the division is largely between the educated, the literate and the and the less literate and non non-literate. Um there are evidence, there's evidence in the middle ages of, of people from the highest ranks of society showing an interest in fairies so that uh, you know, I don't think that that it's a little too simple to say that the folk are just the the peasantry. Um, having said that, um, I do think that there are all sorts of ways in which fairies have. A cultural function at a, at a village level. Um, as you say, they, they, they provide a kind of spiritual realm which people can immediately grasp in a way that the church's rather rarefied uh, religious ideas are much more difficult, I think, to, to, to accept. Um, but they also, they also allow people, they explain, and Ruth, Ruth is very good on this, um, they explain things that, in a pre-scientific society, that that otherwise are difficult to explain. But they also, I think, can reconcile people to one another. The example I I, I might give is uh, fairies in in the Middle Ages could have sex with with mortals. Uh, That's very common in in, in romances and in in stories that turn up in Chronicles, too. Um, And they could actually father children or they could bear children. Um, And... uh, When one thinks about it, this is actually a very good way for, at a village level, for accounting for otherwise unattributable pregnancies. If if somebody has slept with a village priest, for instance, or slept with a married man and gets pregnant, a a fairy paternity is a way for the village the villagers to kind of accept this and get on with life. So I think there's an certainly an explanatory function, but I think there's also a way in which fairies kind of day-to-day existence. <laughs> uh, that's the benevolent side of them, of course, as, as Ruth points out. They can, they can also be malevolent, but... Uh uh, does, does that help? Does that? I think
2: that's helpful. I mean, we're going to have to uh, wrap up this segment here. You've both been marvelous. Although one thing I would, will also say, Richard, here at the end is, and having just returned from Sligo and climbed Knocknaree, where you have to work pretty hard not to believe in, in fairies and Caromor and all these megalithic ruins are around. You know, Yeats got interested in fairies and folk tales and theosophy and all this stuff right around the time he got interested in Irish nationalism. And I do feel as though there's, uh, maybe I'm stretching a point here, but I feel as though there's this notion that fairies are part of a local culture in a lot of places and, and, and people may want to cling to those stories because they are, in this case, identifiably Irish as opposed to uh, identifiably British or, or, you know, it's a resistance to colonization maybe.
1: I, I think that's absolutely true, and I think if you if you've been to Iceland for your holidays, you'd experience the same phenomenon. I, I mean, I, I think that there is a pride in local traditions and uh, and a resistance to outsiders uh, telling you that they that they are nonsense. Um, it's surprising how you know even even the sort of Irish diaspora in North America still, as you as you pointed out at the top of the show, uh, still clings to these beliefs, um, or if if not. In some cases, genuinely, I, I think there are still people in, in, in the modern world who believe in
2: fairies. Absolutely, absolutely. We have to stop there. You both have been marvelous once again. Uh, it has been A. Ruth Boddingheimer. Uh, she's the author of Fairy Tales, A New History. Uh, A. Richard Green. Um, oh, the original initials aren't A. They're just in the A segment. <laughs> um, Richard Green, uh, who's uh, the author of Elf, Queens, and Holy Friars, Fairy Beliefs, and the Medieval Church. We'll be back to talk about some fairies who are hanging around in Hartford right now
0: on the next best thing next best thing yeah once upon a time in a faraway kingdom
3: man made up a story said that i should believe him go and tell you what,
2: that all right we are back we're talking about fairies you know sometimes people tell me apropos of something like game of thrones oh i don't like fantasy Uh, I, I don't I can't I don't do fantasy and I always say to them, so no Tempest, no Midsummer Night's Dream. For that matter, in Romeo and Juliet, you've got Mercutio's great Queen Mab speech. Uh, Shakespeare uh, was not unfond of fairies, uh, and there are certain plays that require them. And, of course, *Midsummer Night's Dream is one of them. It's being done at the Hartford Stage Company right now through October 8th. You still have time to go get tickets. Uh, We're going to talk talk to two participants uh, in that show uh, right now. Uh, But maybe just to get you in the mood, uh, let's hear a little bit of Puck. Uh, We have a little clip from the show.
4: If we shadows have offended, think but this, and all is amended. that you have but slumbered here while these visions did appear, and this weak and idle theme, no more yielding but a dream. Gentles, do not reprehend. If you pardon, we will mend. And, as I am an honest puck, if we have unearned luck now to scape the serpent's tongue, we will make amends ere long. Else the puck, a liar call. So, good
2: night unto you all. We have the man who's speaking those words, Will Apicella, with us today. Also, uh, Darko Treznik, uh, the artistic director of Hartford Stage Company and the director of this show. Um, Darko, I'm going to start with you. Welcome back to our show. Thanks, uh so uh, if you're going to direct Midsummer Night's Dream you're going to have to make a decision about uh, fairies. Who are they? What are they? What are they going to be within the reality of this show? So so how did you think that through?
5: Uh it's uh it's interesting because there are four worlds in Midsummer and um the first time I directed 11 years ago I felt like I I felt really pleased with the other three worlds but not so much with the fairies with what I did. So since then, I think what's different is I went to, you know, worked at the Royal Shakespeare Company and I've stayed in those woods.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: <laughs> you know, I've uh, I walked, uh, you know, uh, at night and in the morning and at dusk, you know, the woods where Shakespeare grew up. And uh, and you realize that the phrase, like, I know a bank where the wild thyme blows, where oxlips and the nodding violet grows, quite overcanopied with luscious woodbine, with musk roses, with eglantine, you think about it as an abstraction, but I was looking. At the foliage, and I was like, "Oh, there it is—the <laughs> language from Midsummer in front of me." So it was very much based on that. And then this summer, I went to Scotland to the Isle of Skye, and we went to this place, the Fairy Glen. And I was like, "Oh my God, this—this <laughs> uh, this is what Shakespeare was writing about." Uh, so while I myself don't believe in fairies, I could see how the landscape inspired that. And what I've thought about, you know, in particular with Puck. Um, is, you know, the the way that he speaks, um, up and down, up and down. Um, It's very much like the witches, double, double toil and trouble. You know, that there's the sink slunk pattern. It's like the witches in Macbeth. So, you know, what I've thought about is that this world of the fairies, that it's mercurial. Mm-hmm. that they're capable of menace that Puck in particular I was looking for somebody because <laughs> he really enjoys messing with those four young teenagers who are in love you know so very much those were the things that were on my mind that uh, that I thought it should have a certain degree of menace but also physically I wanted to be inspired by that landscape so I don't know if that answers your question it does answer uh, you.
2: Is mm-hmm. my question yeah. well so Will yeah. there there are certain rules that you can prepare for if you're going to play a steel worker uh, I guess you can go to a, a steel yard or a construction yeah. site. Uh, how do you prepare to be Puck?
4: Oh, that's a really good question. I think, I think for Puck, because like Darko was just saying, he speaks in a very specific, particular way, and the language is very, very intricate. So for me, it was all about just like taking a fine-tooth comb and going through all of the language and becoming for myself very, very clear about what it was I was saying, why I was saying it. Why I was saying it in that specific manner. Because he says things in very, like we, you just heard that if we to something to think, but this all is mended. It's in rhyming couplets. It's very, for the most part, it's very neat and very, um, uh, sort of neat, uh, ten syllables to a line. Mm. So for me, it was two weeks of just going through it, and then we got to rehearsals, and it was so interesting because so much of what Puck does is to the audience, and in response to something he gets from the audience. But in rehearsal, obviously, you you don't have an audience, so you're sort of assuming maybe what the response could be, what might it be, I'm not really sure. And then I didn't think I had anything truly in the direction of figuring something out with Puck until we had the first preview, when suddenly I had this response coming back from the audience. I was like, oh, that's what that means. That's why I'm behaving. That's why this is the, oh, that makes so much sense. And it was all because of the way I was interacting with the audience, which is perhaps more so than something that interacted with the audience a little less.
2: You know, Darko, as he says that, it strikes me that fairies in some ways are the early postmodernists. Um, it's not just Puck interacting with the audience, which, as Will says, he does. But as I was mentioning earlier in the uh, the stage version of Peter Pan, children are invited to clap their hands in the audience mm-hmm. to save the life yeah. of Tinkerbell. The audience is actually yeah. told that it can affect what's yeah. happening yeah. on stage. Yeah. So, Dargo, yeah. Tar- Tar- what, what do you make of that? Is that sort of the uh, another version of the veil between one world and another?
5: I think, you know, I didn't hear the first part of your show, I just raced into the office, mm-hmm. but I think in Shakespeare plays, You know, the actors always meet. The other acting partner is always the audience. And Shakespeare's characters know that somebody's watching. (laughs) You know, it's foreign to some contemporary uh, uh, writers, and especially, strangely enough, to some contemporary critics, who should know better. But, you know, the direct address in Shakespeare is a huge thing. In *Midsummer*, you know, Helen is the first one who breaks that wall and talks directly to the audience. So there is a great, great interest in doing that and so when you have something like a Midsummer Night's Dream it pulls you when they address you into that world of magic it sucks you right in so that you open up your imagination to the possibility of supernatural
2: you know Darko the first part of our show I'm talking a little bit more to kind of ethnologists in general about the notion mm-hmm. of fairies and, and how real they might have been at any given time how real do you yeah. think fairies were to either Shakespeare or the audience at the Globe
5: how real they were to them yeah uh you know, uh, I I think they believed in them. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I think uh, I think that, um, that I, I'd like to think that Shakespeare believed in them. As I said, this was the trickiest part of the play for me, yeah. because uh, I my mind doesn't go in that direction. You know, <laughs> so at, fi- at times I found myself struggling with this part of the play. And then I asked myself, I mean, when you meet Oberon and Titania, you know, in the beginning, I kind of finally I was like okay so the fairy king and queen are in the middle of a custody battle Mm -hmm. over a changeling child they're slinging insults about infidelity Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know everyone is running for cover so I had to really kind of go to something very practical to give the actors you know and then on top of that there is this extraordinary language Mm -hmm. and there you know and then there we find out that the discord between Oberon and Titania that it's, that it's uh, affecting the entire nature, mm. <laughs> you know, and they, she goes on to describe this ecological disaster that's very much like what has been happening in the world right now, yes, and, and I, she d- says, and actually prophetically, she says, if we were to treat each other better, you know what I mean, this would go away, mm. and it's just throughout the play, there's this extraordinary respect mm. for nature, mm you know, that sort of struck me as prophetic. So so going back to your question, I feel like you know, for Shakespeare, when he writes about fairies and how they solve the discord in the fairy world, it has something, it's like a plea to humanity, mm-hmm. plea to human beings with power mm-hmm. to be better, to each other, <laughs> to nature, to everything that surrounds them. And so I find that, you know, that uh, that I think the supernatural life was useful to Shakespeare, that it was kind of, at least in *Midsummer*, a plea for kind of a better world. That's how I see it.
2: Well, We're almost out of time, yeah. but one thing we do know is that the word, word Puck, the name Puck wouldn't have been necessarily unfamiliar. Puck, a.k.a. Yeah. A- a- a Robin mm-hmm. Goodfellow. Puck was a yeah. name they would have yeah. known,
5: right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing, that, I'm not, I'm not oh, sure oh. if you... Sorry, well, I'm not sure if you covered this earlier in the show, but um, there are references to Elizabeth... In the play, and um, you know that the she, she was associated with fairies. You know that she was powerful, supernatural. Mm-hmm. And when Oberon talks about the imperial imperial votress, pass it on and maiden meditation, fancy free. That's a direct reference to Elizabeth yeah. in the play. So I think. You know, humanizing of the rulers, Yes. you know, using using fairies as a metaphor has a lot to do with it. So,
2: Darko, I've got about a minute left. Let me go over to mm-hmm. Will for a second. So, Please. Will, when you're out there, do you feel like a fairy? I mean, are you trying to feel uh, like something other than a human being?
4: Uh, yeah, I think so, um, because Puck can sh- shapeshift into thousands of different things. Anything I'd like to shapeshift into, I can. And while I keep what is my form during the play, I think... I feel like very sort of fluid, and I'm, ho- I'm trying to create this aura of hopefully the audience believes with the snap of my fingers I could be a headless bear or a hound or a hog, and I have the power to conjure up all of this fog and mist and lead people around and become invisible. So, I mean, I'm not, I never 100% think, oh, yeah, I'm a fairy right now. I can do all these things. But I think when you really commit to the language of what he's saying and all the things I say that I can do eventually it sort of engenders some sort of movement in you where you think, wow, maybe
2: I could do this. All right. You know what I mean? Uh, Yeah, and hopefully the audience thinks that too. But we have to stop there. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back in a little while. We're going to tell you about one of the most heated discussions of fairies that the semi-modern world has ever known. It was 100 years ago in a British village. Meanwhile, some people are going to come on and tell you reasons why you should support this station. If you like our show in particular, and if you like the idea that there is a show that might do an entire show episode about fairies in the year 20. 17, uh, perhaps he'll contribute now. It kind of gets marked down on our ledger in an especially nice way. So please do. Ordinarily <laughs> in this space, Kyone Wolf comes on and tells you who did what. She's not here today, so I will do it. Uh, Josh Nalea is the producer of this show. This is one- <laughs> what shows that I really wanted to do. And so I made somebody do it. But uh, he has risen to the challenge here um, and done a show about fairies. Uh, Betsy Kaplan's on the board today. Jonathan McNichol is running around helping out with uh, this thing and that thing. Uh, Amanda Fish actually is a fairy. And of course, the part of Bill Curry was played by Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, tomorrow, let me tell you what's happening tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'm going to be on the wheelhouse in the morning talking about politics at nine. Then we are going to rerun at one a show that if you haven't heard, I really urge you to listen to. It's about Sergeant Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Uh, it's a pretty deep analysis into the music, but, I mean, a really fun deep analysis that we did a while back uh, with Steve Metcalf and one other guest who'd made a documentary about it. And then I will be, the reason I'm doing that is that at night, at 7 p.m. at Watkinson School, I will be hosting one of those forums known as Freshly Squeezed. Uh, it's called the Great Democracy Suggestion Box. The notion is if you feel as though our democracy is broken right now, How would you go about fixing it? What would be a thing that you could do? Maybe a structural change that you could make, um, a philosophical change that you could make that would get at the roots of our democracy and water them better than they're being watered now. Bill Curry, former counselor uh, to President Bill Clinton will be a panelist, so will Bilal Siku, professor of political science at the University of Hartford and Suzanne Bates from the Yankee Policy Institute upholding the conservative end of things. Uh, And I think there may be some tickets still available. You go to watkinson.org to find out about that and look around for the freshly squeezed icon or or whatever there is there. Um, All right, that's all I have to say uh, in terms of new business. Uh, Now it's time to talk about something that is having its 100th anniversary uh, this year, uh, which means that in 1917 there was, uh, in a very small town, as I understand it anyway, a very small town called Cottingley uh, in, in Britain, um, a report of fairies, uh, and it's been talked about a lot, chronicled in lots of different ways. And I've actually seen the the movie that is based on it called Photographing Fairies. Um, why don't we just, before we even get going here, play a clip from that movie. You're going to hear uh, Edward Gardner, a leading member of uh, England's Theosophical Society, addressing a meeting of said society about these photographs said to be of fairies.
1: A waterfall near the village of Cottingley. Not an ordinary waterfall, ladies and gentlemen. For it's home to one of the oldest myths of mankind. We humans are not alone. We share our planet with a quite different order of life. Fairies. They're spoken of in every culture of the world, from New Zealand to the New Hebrides. Handmaidens of nature, according to some, assisting in propagation and growth. Another theory. Exiles from heaven. Gods orphans straddling this world and the next. Messengers between the two worlds, perhaps.
2: All right. Uh, Nature's handmaidens indeed. Uh, We've been talking about fairies uh, since the show began. Now it's time to talk to Fiona Marr, uh, author of several books, including The Secret of the Cottingley Fairies and her latest, The Last Changeling. So, Fiona Marr, I've done my best uh, in my meager way to set up this story, but um, maybe you can fill in some of the gaps. Tell us what was going on in 1917 in the village of Cottingley
3: okay good afternoon colin um well what happened was two little girls elsie and Frances, went to the beck which is the local word for a stream that ran behind the house and they took these photographs which were developed and found to show fairies um these photographs were then allegedly passed around the family put into a drawer and forgotten and it wasn't until 1919 that one of the girls mothers was at a meeting with of the theosophical society And she showed them to a lady speaker. And then eventually they came to the uh, notice of this chap who who just played the clip from, Edward Gardner. And Edward Gardner was so taken with them, he took them on a a tour of Britain. And he was in London and a certain lady called E.M. Blomfeld saw them. And she sent them to her cousin, uh, copies of these photographs. And that was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, creator of Sherlock Holmes, he was very suspicious at first eventually he fell for their charm and by 1920 completely believed in them and had them published in the Strand newspaper. And that's the story as most people
2: know it. Right. So there's kind of an odd paradox Paradox there when we get to Conan Doyle. Conan yeah. Doyle gives us Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes is the master of the scientific method. And I'm sure uh, a firm believer in Occam's razor, don't believe in things that you don't have any need to believe in, believe in what you can see and understand scientifically. We're in a completely other end of the spectrum with yeah. the Scottie Lee fairies.
3: So, so what happened? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Well, there's, there are there are several reasons why he would believe. Um, he actually sort of got hoist by his own petard, you know, this idea that when you remove what's the impossible, whatever is left, however improbable, must be the truth. That was a quote from Sherlock Holmes. Um, first of all, he trained as an ophthalmologist, so he had a firm belief that people could actually, well, children could see more than adults. Mm. Um, And that's not so far from the truth, because children certainly can hear more than adults. That's been scientifically proven now. But he believed that they could sort of pierce the veil and see through either end of the spectrum. Um, In 1895, I believe it was, a chap called Reunchen had discovered X-rays. Now, if we had any technology now that was more than 20 years old, we would think it was quite old. But in those days, that was still quite a new breakthrough. And it must have been awfully strange to suddenly find that you could see through solid flesh. And I think there have been a lot of people around then thinking, if only we had the right technology, surely we could see fairies. Um, So that was one strand against him. The second was, as indeed, again, perfectly illustrated in the clip you played, um, anyone who believed in spiritualism um, had this notion that fairies would somehow be the thin end of the wedge, that somehow if we could get people to believe in fairies, they would then start taking on board this whole idea of spiritualism. Uh, the next strand that kind of really helped to bolster this case was there were a lot of people doing this thing called spirit photography at the time. Um, it was just shortly after the, well actually when the pictures were allegedly taken it was during the First World War, because that ran 1914 to 1918. But um, so many people had lost children in that war. They'd lost their sons. Uh, there were so many grieving families, and people were desperate to believe in something. And certain, certain photographers would take photographs and would superimpose the pictures of their, the sons upon them so they could almost see that their, their children were still with them. So all these things, but most compelling of all, I believe, is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's upbringing. His uncle, Dickie Doyle, illustrated many fairy books. So, so the young Doyle grew up with all these fairy illustrations around him. But even more than that, his father, um, Charles Altamont Doyle, painted lots and lots of fairies all the time. But this was while he was confined to a lunatic asylum. Um, now, most people of that age, Victorian Edwardian, if you had somebody who, who had mental illness, it was a subject of extreme shame, and it wouldn't be mentioned. But Conan Doyle so loved his father. Um, he organised an art exhibition of his work while his father was um, locked away. He also had him illustrate the 1888 edition of A Study in Scarlet, and he actually used the pseudonym Altamont, his father's middle name, as a pseudonym for Sherlock Holmes in His his Last bow which is the final Sherlock Holmes story. So I think, Doyle thought, if I can prove fairies exist, it goes some way to um, validate my father's sort of strange hobby of painting fairies.
2: Right. You know, Fiona, in a way, we have this kind of perfect storm here. We've got, as you say, some technology that was going on that that might point people at this notion that something could be photographed that couldn't have been photographed before. Then we have this spiritualist movement, which really starts, you know, really comes into flower, I think, more in the late 19th century and builds steam. So, yeah, you've got here on this side of the pond, you've got William James, uh, deeply interested in, in parapsychology. You've got all kinds of British intellectuals drifting towards spiritual. Spiritualism. Uh, Gates uh, was uh, uh, involved in Theosophy, and then I think he got kicked out and got involved in some Hermetic older Order of the Golden Band or something. There was a, just a lot of magical and spiritualism accompanying uh, the Industrial Revolution or reacting to the Industrial Revolution. It, it, and then you've yeah, got the, then you've got yeah. World War One.
3: Yeah, I think yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think the the Industrial Revolution started the slide away from organized religion but um, Rupert Graves in his book farewell to all that said that there was no way religion could last more than a couple of days if you were in the hell of the trenches mm-hmm. so you you had the bereft families but you also had swathes of young men coming home who were so scornful of any sort of patriarchal religion by the time they came back it was ripe for something like theosophy which was almost it was really akin to a new age religion because What Theosophy did was it picked all the lovely bits out of all religions, all the bit about being nice to each other and loving one another and appreciating nature and put all those together and threw away all the dogma and the idea of a vengeful God and the idea of an Old Testament God who was angry and, you know, and and judgmental. So I can see why people would find this kind of sunnier uh, religion light, if you like, much more appealing. Than anything, you know. If you've been through hell, the last thing you want to do is to go to a church and have some blood and fire preacher, you know, pointing at you and screaming at you that you're going or going to hell if you've already been there. So I think really everybody was absolutely right for belief in fairies. Um, but in my book, *The Secret of the cotony Fairies*, what I suggest is it wasn't just two little girls up against the mind of the greatest sort of creator of the greatest detective. I think the whole family were in on the hoax. Mm. Um, and that's simply because I, I, I find it very difficult to believe that these sensational pictures were just put in a drawer and forgotten for two years. Mm. And the one thing, if you, if you look at it that way round, you then start looking at the pictures of the girls because there was a second set of photographs taken in 1920 and they really do not appear to have aged significantly. Mm. Um, the actual ages of the girls, depending on the account, range from... 8 to 10 for the youngest and from 14 to 17 for the eldest. And, you know, either way, you know, sort of, I I think the youngest was about 10 and 10 to 13 is a huge developmental leap in anyone's life. And so I had to look almost exactly the same in the photograph. I find that beggar's belief that no one seems to have come at it from that angle yet. Um, But what I did, I started researching the whole story and I discovered a... um, a picture in a newspaper that was published very early in 1918, in April 1918, and it showed a girl sitting by a hedge with some paper-cut-out fairies around her. And it made absolutely no pretense whatsoever that these were real fairies. And this this, um, newspaper magazine uh, was very, very popular at the time. It was called The Sphere. And I believe that Arthur Wright, who was um, Elsie Wright's father, that was the eldest girl, I believe he saw it and thought, I can do better than this.
2: So, but, um, you know, let me do, before we run out of time, but, I, I do want to say, like, to our eyes in
3: 2017, these don't look very convincing.
2: I mean, they. Of course not. No, but think
3: about it. How often do you see CGI in a movie and you think, that is really good? And then a couple of years later, you look at it and you think, oh, that's really clunky.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, the eye gets more and more sophisticated as you go on. In those days, you know, people would have thought they were marvelous. Right. Um, also, Poor Conan Doyle never actually saw the original plates because Gardner, with the best intention, had them, as he said, improved. But really, it was a chap called Harold Snelling who he absolutely doctored them and made them look so much better than they originally were. Now,
2: eventually, but as Paul, as older women, these two formerly younger younger girls, Elsie yeah. and Frances, they did recant, right?
3: Well, they did. What happened was um, a chap um, did um, a, called Fred Gettings he uh, wrote about the uh, the, the uh, fairy pictures. He found the identical images in a book called The Princess Mary Gift Book, which was very prevalent in sort of... Uh, it was actually um, published to make money for the war effort in the First War. And he noticed that each pose of a, a page of dancers was just like the fairies, but without wings. And um, Glenn, who was Elsie Wright's son, confronted her when she was an old lady and said, look, this, this is it, isn't it? This is what you've done. And she admitted. And uh, the, the two of them had fallen out by then, the two girls, Elsie and Frances, by then old ladies. Um, but they both they both admitted they, they'd they faked the, the pictures. But Frances, who'd been the younger girl, said that the fifth photograph was legitimate. That's right. That's Before my favorite she... thing.
2: Yeah, all the other ones yeah, were, 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 were hoaxes, but then fairies showed up for the actual uh, fifth photograph. That's
3: what she said. But yeah. then a chat. Um, called Geoffrey Crawley, who's photographic expert, revealed it was a double exposure (laughs) sometime in the 1980s. Fiona Mar, Does we're
2: going to have to stop here. We're running out of time. Uh, the f- I know, I know, I know. So much more to say about that. Uh, and we, we hate to debunk fairies, but maybe these fairies need to be debunked. The movie Photographing Fairies, I don't know, it's not for everyone, but I really enjoyed it. But then, as you could tell from the beginning of the show, I grew up with fairies. I'm very pro-fairy. Uh, thanks to Fiona Mar, all our, of our other guests. Thanks to uh, Josh Nalia for humoring me, which is a big part of the job of being a producer on this show. We'll be back tomorrow.